It's become an all-too-familiar story for a lot of New Yorkers. Their favorite dive bar or cafe is turned into a 7-Eleven or Apple store. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The plight of mom-and-pop shops in New York City has been back in the headlines in recent weeks, in part due to preservationist Jeremiah Moss's hashtag SaveNYC campaign. It's described as a grassroots, crowdsourced, do-it-yourself movement to protect and preserve the diversity and uniqueness of the urban fabric in New York City. Our first guest says he's witnessed the fabric of his East Harlem neighborhood fray over the years. Andrew J. Padilla is a documentary filmmaker, journalist, and educator. His film, El Barrio Tours, looks at gentrification in East Harlem. Padilla is now working on a project on displacement nationwide. I recently caught up with him on the streets of East Harlem. How much has this neighborhood changed since you were a kid? Well, I mean, one, it was affordable. I mean, I think that's... uh, Our neighborhood has gone through a tremendous change. It's always been... You know, despite all the different ethnic groups that have come through, it's always been a working-class um, neighborhood. You know, for, through uh, the Irish and the Italians and and the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans and all the different groups that have come through this neighborhood, it's always it's, it's for for the law, for over a hundred years. It's been a working-class community, and um, I think the biggest change that we're seeing is that the working class, if they aren't already here in public housing or some sort of um, subsidized living arrangement, um, regulated rent arrangement, or just have a really great landlord. They're really getting gouged to, to live here, and that's causing uh, communities that have been together through some of the worst times in New York uh, to be displaced. So, you know, my, my family, uh, I, I come from a family that chose to stay. They chose to stay in East Harlem um, while many fled, while the public and private sector disinvested in this neighborhood intentionally, um, and they, they decided to stay. And it is, it's troubling to see now that the people who stayed and, and worked to make this place a livable um, beautiful, thriving community are now the ones being left. Now that now that things have have been cleaned up, now uh, now they're they're being forced out. So, seeing that on a very personal level inspired you to do the documentary. When I was when I was growing up, me and my friends, we would always take the six train uptown, and when we got to Ninety Sixth Street, we'd always make a joke that the conductor would yell, "This is Ninety Sixth Street. This is the last stop on this train for all Caucasians. The next stop is One Hundred and Third Street." We joked about it as kids, but as 15-year-olds, we knew who was going to get on and off the train at 96th Street, and we would guess, and we would be right. And I think that one of the moments where I realized that there was a true change occurring in my neighborhood was when we started to get this game wrong, when white people were staying on the train beyond 96th Street for days that weren't Yankee games. And at the same time, there were people of color that we that were our family, our friends, and and, and and community members that they were getting kicked out. So it was just a weird thing. You see people coming into the neighborhood who never otherwise would have come in, and the people that you've grown up with are moving out of the city, out of the state, out of the country altogether. And so you begin to just ask yourself, what's happening here? And so that seeing that change on the train and, and seeing that change in the community began to get me to just ask why. And so I began the process of trying to you know, learn where we had been as a community, where we are now, to try and figure out where it was that this was all headed. And a lot of people see gentrification as a race war, Caucasians against minorities. Is that a fair representation? When gentrification occurs, we see economic development, but the question that we have to ask is whose economy are we developing? And so gentrification is the process of uh, property value developing, but 
working class communities being unable to stay. So either their rents go so high um, because the property value is now high and the landlord can get more, or the rents go so high because now that the property value is raised, the tax is raised, and these, you know, the landlord is, is going to have to raise the rents respectively. So um, it's a combination of structural issues and individual greed, but our individual decisions obviously affect the structures we're in. Um, so is race... Does race have to do with it? Of course. Race and economics are in, intrinsically linked, especially if you consider what our history in America is. You know, our, our nation was built on slavery. That's a thing that happened for many generations. And so while we are no longer able to discriminate on face due to race, all of those generations of structural um, oppression and disadvantage, those have all led us to be in the position we are today. So when, when people see gentrification as a very black and white process, I always caution them against seeing it that simply. But it is true that most of that, that this city is becoming increasingly unaffordable for working class communities, and most of the working class communities of, of, of color here are just not able to stay. It's not an accident. But I think too often we get we, we do focus on these individual relations and I think the example I like to look at is the Titanic. You know, the Titanic did go down um, and when it went down, there were people in first, second, and third class that died. There were obviously a lot more in third class that died than first class, but that ship was still sinking. And so I think there's a leveling to gentrification. There's a leveling to oppression. There's a leveling to disenfranchisement, and, and it's the same thing here. What did you discover in the making of your documentary that surprised even you, someone who grew up in this neighborhood? What surprised me most about learning, learning more about gentrification and displacement was seeing how many other communities were dealing with the same exact issue. Uh, at first I thought it was just my community, then I thought it was just the city, and then I thought well, maybe it's just American cities and then you see, you know, actually one of the people who just moved into this neighborhood she's from Brixton, and at first she does like yarn bombing, and at first, you know, I thought, oh, you know, this woman is probably from Williamsburg, and, you know, okay, yarn's coming up, whatever. And I spoke to her, and it's like she's from Brixton. Like, and Brixton is dealing with gentrification, and she wanted to be here because it was like, ah, I don't want to deal with gentrification. And she gets here, and she's like, oh, no. You know, I mean, so it's a, well, the forces that we're dealing with are, are larger global economic forces that, um, that obviously come into play. But there are individual decisions that we can make differently, and there's policy decisions we can make differently. And I think, unfortunately, um, we're not making enough of those decisions differently. We, we, we continue to do the same things and expect to get a, a different outcome. What are among the key policy decisions you think need to move forward? I mean, I think that before... What's interesting is under Bloomberg, there was this idea that development's going forward, build, build, build. And, um, and I think that there were some who thought when de Blasio would get elected that there would be a slow or that there would be a revisioning. or that. But it seems as though that, it, if anything, we're, we're doubling down and we're building taller and we're building denser. And it's not to say that New York doesn't need those things, but... Like, New York doesn't need to grow as a city, but I think the question is, like, in what order do we do that? Like, before anything, we should be working to, to stabilize the communities that have been here through the struggle, as opposed to focusing on how we attract even more commerce and individuals from outside to come in. I think we first need to, to, to stabilize what we have right here. We're standing right before a new development right here, which looks like a brand new luxury apartment complex. When people talk about gentrification being black and, and white, I, I like to look at this. This is an example where gentrification was a bit more complicated. There's been a supermarket at this block for, you know, I think like 70 years or something. And a couple years ago, the supermarket was taken down. And 
another supermarket was put up. And on top of that were some apartments. What that did in, in just... That building didn't displace anybody, right? When, it, when the imprint came in, it didn't displace anybody. So there'd be people who would say, well, that's not gentrification because no one was displaced by that physical building. But if you look across the street, there was about five or six small businesses here that were thriving for decades. One small business that was here for 58 years, a botanica. And once the landlord of that building found out that on this side of the street there were going to be apartments that were going for anywhere from 800000 and $1.1 million, they all of a sudden realized that they could get a lot more in rent. And so what you saw was is when their leases were up, that landlord say, y'all have to go. And so this stretch has been abandoned for a few years, and now we see a 7-Eleven in come in. It's going to be like the second 7-Eleven that East Harlem has. So this is a perfect example. You know, here we would say, oh, well, development happened, and there was no one displaced. But there was, no, there was nothing to stop landlords from just doubling their rents. And so when we're talking about how we prevent displacement, we definitely want to focus on you know, illegal displacement and harassment. But we have to do something about the very legal displacement that's occurring in this city, the displacement that there really is no legal redress for. If your lease is up and your rent doubles, if there was no other conditions on your lease that require the landlord to keep your rent at a certain rate, then you're, then you're done, then you're out. And so I think that our policies need to be geared towards doing things in that sector. Like, what do we, you know, obviously we have to prevent harassment and prevent illegal displacement. We also have to figure out, are we preventing legal displacement? Is that something that we fundamentally think that we should do? Do people have the right to stay in the communities that they um, fought to make better as the public sector and private sector abandoned them through the 70s and the 80s. I think people forget that New York City closed the busiest firehouse in the South Bronx while that neighborhood burnt to the ground. There are multiple abandoned firehouses and abandoned schools in this neighborhood. So it is not to say that we don't want better public services, but we would like to be able to benefit um, from what occurs in these neighborhoods. And if our rents are doubling, it's not something you know that we can really benefit from. And how do you answer someone who'll say, you know what, these landlords are just taking advantage of what the market can bear. We can get it, so we'll do it. This is business. We have to understand what our role in the market is as well. And the public sector has been incentivizing this housing boom in New York. It's not an accident that people want to come to New York from all over the world, and it's not an accident that luxury developments are still getting tax breaks um, up to a billion dollars a year in just the 421A tax abatement. So I think it's important to to understand that, yes, you know, you can command those higher rents on the market depending on where you're at, um, but that is not magic and it's not happenstance. That is the result of policy decisions. And if we want to keep the working class here, we should maybe consider making different policy decisions. These are changes that you are not only documenting here in New York City. How does this compare to elsewhere in the world that you've been documenting, looking to document? What's scary is that we see small businesses being kicked out of just about every major American city center. Property value is soaring, and if it's hard for tenants to get by, it's even harder for for commercial storefronts because there's there's no such thing as, at least residents have rent stabilization. There's no such thing as commercial rent stabilization in this city, and I haven't heard talks about that for years in a serious way. And so, I don't know. But that is definitely, um, if it's hard for residents to stay, it's even harder for small businesses to stay. And when I was in East Austin about a month ago, I went to this piñata store that had actually been demolished for South by Southwest. 
South by Southwest is kind of just like taking over East Austin. Uh, it started as an indie festival, and now it's gotten a lot bigger. It's got all these huge acts that come through. I mean, it's a pretty fun festival, but all of the desire to expand that party out has actually led to the small businesses there being pushed out. There was a piñata store, uh, Piñatas Jombolin, that was actually destroyed. In the middle of just like in the middle of the morning, the owners come and they see in there, and and all their stuff is just strewn out on the on on the street. Their building is reduced to rubble. All their files, all their papers, are all their products are destroyed. They were luckily saved by a community organization uh, called Poder that allowed them to open up a temporary storefront on their on their land and 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 kind of rehab them until they're ready to to get a new storefront. But we we see this happening all across the country. Sometimes it's more blatant. And I think that that's one of the things that has galvanized some people in East Austin, at the least, because it was a very blatant example of, okay, outside, investors come in, literally physically demolish this place against the law, right? There was no eviction, no notice, no none of that. And, um, and there was obviously outrage for that. I just hope that there will be outrage for the less clear examples of displacement, the less illegal examples of displacement, because in New York right now, if your lease is up and your rent doubles as a tenant or as a as a residential tenant or as a commercial tenant, your SOL and JWF, unless you suddenly have double the money. Andrew, thanks so much for your time. No problem. Andrew J. Padilla is a documentary filmmaker, journalist, and educator. His film, El Barrio Tours, looks at gentrification in East Harlem. More about Andrew and his work at andrewjpadilla.com. In our interview, Andrew referenced a botanica at 104th Street and Lexington Avenue that was displaced after the landlord refused to renew the lease. But the owner of that botanica managed to reopen two and a half blocks north. Andrew introduced me to him. My name is Jorge Vargas. I'm well known in Spanish Harlem as Justo Botanica because it's a family tradition name. And I'm well known in that. So how long has this botanica been a part of this neighborhood? 1930. 1930. 1930. That's a long time. Yeah. That's how long it's been existing in New York City when uh, there used to be the Malqueta, when it used to be Spanish 100%. And who started it in your family? My grandmom and my dad. My dad was a worker for Wadi Airport. But he was a circuit man, too, and he grew in 30, uh, a few years, 30-something years in Cuba. My dad had died in 107, so he was right. But we moved to 1954 to 104 because Rockefeller took all that area. So th- how long have you been in this location now? Right now, I just got to, uh, tw- I would say, uh, break it down, 28 months or 29 months, something like that. So tell me your story. What happened to the Botanica in your previous location? My previous location? New owners came in, I think, because I knew my... I had about five or six owners. And uh, new European owners came in, and um, they made leases for uh, to September of 2012. And they kicked us out that day. They didn't give us a chance to uh, move or to plan or to anything. They just said that we had to move and we had to vacate the area. Some businesses after that would have just 
That's it. Finished. Yeah, done. Finished. How did you manage to well, reopen? Well, I, 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 you know, I could have fight it. I could have fight it. And they would have had to pay me out. Because I had 50, since 1954 there. I'm well known. I was a community place. I could have fight it. But I know that modernization and uh, today, you know, there's no such thing as, uh, they, they say that freedom of speech you have the right to uh, express yourself and to do that, but what it comes to is that the politicians have the right. You don't have it. You, they could listen to you, but it doesn't make no sense. They are the last one to make the decision. So your word goes away. So I say, you know, I'm going to be fighting for something. If I stay there, it's going to pass a couple of years. Sure, they might not pay rent, nothing, but, you know, at the end they're going to kick me out. So therefore, I just decided to, as an American, move on. So how important was it for you to find a new place and open up again? It was not easy. Because that day I had, a, I had a huge store. Actually, it was like a three stores. And I had a lot of merchandise. So I didn't know what I was doing. It was very, very, it was a big weight on me. But I don't know where I got the strength or whatever I got. It, uh, I looked for something, and I saw something in 116, which was huge. But it was not right for me because the people there were not that great. The orders were not that great. So my, my accountant said, George, I spoke to my accountant. And I said, George, forget I can't even deal with them. Look for another place. So that was very sadness to me. That night I walked over, I closed my shop and I walked over here, and, I, and fortunately I saw these people moving out. And something told me to ask permission to go in. And I did, and, and it sure received me right. And, 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 and I was close to my people. And I felt very good, and that's why I got here. And you could afford the rent, and it was could, the place uh, for you. I balanced myself. But why was it important for you to reopen in the neighborhood? It was because I love my people. I was raised in this barrio. Went to school here, went to everything here. This was my life and, my, and the people of my life. So this is where I was. This is, this, is, this is who I was and they are with me and I was with them. So I couldn't just leave it. You know, I, I could have gone to Florida and Puerto Rico and built something. But, you know, I always came back to my barrio. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Jorge Vargas ran a botanica at 104th Street and Lexington Avenue in East Harlem until 2013. He was forced to move two and a half blocks north after his landlord refused to renew his lease. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. From the east side of Manhattan to the west side, specifically the upper west side, where at least one mom-and-pop business has had pretty good luck with its landlord. West Side Kids is located at 498 Amsterdam Avenue. They've been around since 1981. I talked with the store's president, Jennifer Berkman. So what's the history behind West Side Kids? Um, my mom started it in 1981. Um, it was a consignment clothing store and children's um I guess supplies, like we had cribs and strollers and all that kind of stuff. And it was also an outlet for my mom because she made toys. 
She made toys. She made, what kind of toys did she make? She made toys. She started um, her toy making business in the early 70s with another woman, um, actually Diana McCourt, who's Malachi McCourt's wife. <laughs> and um, they started making toys for children of um, with children with special needs, children of color, and it was called Toys for All Children. And she made puzzles and puppets and lots of other things that I can't think of right now, but really beautiful toys, um, doing things like, you know, making a puppet of an African-American doc- woman doctor, which, you know, in 1970 didn't exist. Today, we we just take it for granted. And so she was making those toys, but they didn't really have um, so much of an outlet to sell them. And then so when I was in sixth grade, she actually opened her first store in New Rochelle. And then in 1981, she opened Westside Kids. But then by 1986, the toys that she was purchasing um, really were, became the more popular thing, and so she went all toys in 1986. So when did you come to the determination that you were going to work with your mom and become the president of this store? I was in grad school um, in the 90s, and she was expanding her, the landlord had come to her offering her the store next door to expand, and she didn't want to do it alone. I was in the midst of writing my thesis in art history, which I was discovered I was hating, and um, came on board to help with special events and that kind of thing, and really stayed for a while. I did leave for eight years and have now been back for five. Um, And she's since retired. She retired almost two years ago. How would you describe your place in this neighborhood? Well, other people call us an institution. We're one of the only toy stores left. We have um, survived many challenges, and um, we're definitely a mainstay. How do you manage to survive in today's world? It's tough, but I have to give kudos to my landlord. We have a really fair landlord who also calls, they call themselves a mom and pop, and they understand the importance of small businesses and and necessary businesses to maintain the health of a community. And, um, I mean, we're not a charity case in any sense of the word, but they're not going to double our rent. We also are, again, because we're a mom and pop and we live in the neighborhood, we know the neighborhood and we buy for the neighborhood. We're not some buying office out in Ohio that thinks we know what you need. So you say to me, this is something I'm interested in. I'm going to go out and find it for you. Um, if you go on to you know, the Bayamith websites and look at their top 10 or top 100 or top you know, whatever, toys, you may not find them here. They don't sell for us. So if somebody says, I saw this on Amazon and it got great, great reviews, I can say, well, I tried to sell that and no one wanted it here. The Upper West Side is a very unique community, um, and so we have to buy for it. Aside from the possibility of rising rents, is the web the biggest competition to a mom and pop like yours? Yes, absolutely. We are constantly struggling to compete with the pricing online because it's really very unfair. Managing a brick-and-mortar store, the expenses just, you know, you can't compete with those prices because they're not real. They're not realistic. Anyone else that walks into a bank with the business plan of Amazon, they'd be laughed at. Manufacturers are devaluing their product. Um, And so we need to find ways to compensate for that. We have never gouged our customers. We've never charged more than we need to. But we also, um, so we make sure that we, as, as always, this has never changed, our customer service really has to be stellar. And we go out of our way and bend over backwards to make sure we know our product and that our customer walks out with the best possible toy. Jennifer, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 
Jennifer Bergman is the president of West Side Kids, a toy store on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Finally today, we catch up with Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer. She recently outlined a series of ideas to help small businesses survive and thrive in the Big Apple. I asked the borough president what she thinks mom-and-pop stores have to offer the city. They offer, in so many cases, the heart and soul of the neighborhood. Uh, Mom-and-pop is the grocery store, the uh, pharmacy that you, where you know the owner, the shoe man, often service stores, the unusual, unique, edgy hat store, so many different ideas of what commercial is that I couldn't even begin to think of. Um, you know, it, when you walk down the restaurant that you see is neighborhood or something, you know, with excellent food. It, there's, there's no one way to describe, I think, a mom and pop. You know it when you see it almost. What are you hearing from these small business owners here in New York City in terms of how they're managing, what their future is? Well, you, I hear a lot from the uh, stores in New York City. I think the number one, at least in Manhattan, issue I hear about is rent because you often have wonderful customers, you have great clients, you're lots of traffic and so on. But when the rent goes up a huge amount, then you don't have a chance of competing. Um, I heard from the stationery store recently on 100 and I think it's 100 Street um, and the store next door was empty and he was given less than a month to leave and he's been there 32 years. I hear things like that. So what can the city do to make sure that small businesses, mom and pops, survive and thrive in this well, city? Well, I think one of the ones that the mayor is talking about is dealing with uh, trying to reduce and do education first before you give somebody a fine or fee. And I think to the credit of the mayor, they're looking at that right now and trying to address that issue for restaurants and for retail. And then, you know, in terms of the question of rent, we are suggesting uh, mediation, you know, where you have a situation where you bring in a mediator and you hope you come to a discussion and a opportunity to renew a lease. But at least if you don't, you have a whole year to find new space at perhaps a small increase. But you absolutely cannot be thrown out with like a month's notice after 32 years of excellent business at a location. How frequently are you seeing that? Oh, I, we get calls a lot about the lease situation. I just was speaking to some of the northern Manhattan elected officials, and they are beginning to see that in Washington Heights and Inwood and all through Harlem. Now, you also want to see tenants get more notification of rent increases, right, before the end of the lease? Yes, that would be absolutely helpful. The issue is, most importantly, to be honest with you, is this huge rent increase no matter when it comes. I know that recently you held a news conference to talk about this issue. You also mm-hmm. talked about the report that you put together, Small yeah. Business, Big Impact, Expanding mm-hmm. Opportunity for Manhattan Storefronts, and you had the halal guys there. Yes, yes. What absolutely. do you think they represent? Well, they have um, started, as you know, a very successful court, uh, cart. They started on 53rd and 6th Avenue. still has long lines. It's still there. And what they have done since is to have some what I call brick and mortars. And they tend to put their brick and mortar near a university where they have uh, lots of students. Uh, It's inexpensive, excellent food. They have one near NYU in New York City, and now they have one on 95th in Amsterdam, which isn't far from Columbia University. And they have them in other parts of the, uh, the country and the world. 
near universities. So what that says is they work hard, they have good food, it's somewhat inexpensive, nothing in New York is super inexpensive, but it's somewhat inexpensive, and they have a good business model, but it started with just one cart. Another idea is to condoize more storefronts. What's that all about? Well, I know some uh, small businesses that had enough foresight to buy the space in which they operate, and they are set, you know, in terms of their own future. And so, I, you know, that was the idea would be to either buy the building or buy the space in which you operate. And that might be something that could be done with federal money. There are some federal monies available to do that. Again, not easy, but it's an idea that I think could maintain some of the mom and pops in our neighborhoods. What about just the idea of consumers doing more? Obviously, we have Small Business Saturday that happens once a year, but just putting out that call to New Yorkers to make sure that you're frequenting these mom and pops. Well, we've certainly done that. We have Buy Local um, and lots of stores around the city, at least in Manhattan, have wonderful signs that say Buy Local. So what's the status of the legislation you want to see through? So the legislation has been introduced to the legislative services, which is the drafting services of the city council, with um, the chair of the Small Business Committee, Councilmember Robert Carnegie, and we are waiting to have it introduced, but it is being drafted. Who is your biggest opposition? I haven't heard that um, anybody come out against it. Um, People are aware of it. But I haven't heard anybody say that they're not for maintaining the mom and pops in some kind of a reasonable fashion. Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, thanks so much. Thank you. You'll find the Manhattan Borough President online at manhattanbp.nyc.gov. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. As always, you can listen to past episodes of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.